When I was working with students, I often had to warn them against going to these scripture study evenings run by non-Catholics. The danger lies in the fact that our approaches to Revelation are in some ways diametrically opposite. To learn more about the Church, they go to Scripture. To learn more about sacred Scripture, we go to the Church. To clear up a disputed point in dogma or morals, they would consult the Bible. We would look to the teaching of the Church. In those chaplaincy days, I knew an overseas student who was staying in a Methodist hostel. His uncle was the bishop back in his own country. Now, this young man used to go to the scripture study evenings in his hostel. I warned him that he did. I'm going to quote St. Polycarp, who was the great bishop of Smyrna, who was martyred about the year 155. He had known St. John the Evangelist, and it was by him that he was made bishop of Smyrna. That's a place in Asia Minor. In the second chapter of the book of the Apocalypse, when St. John is talking about the angels or bishops, it's Smyrna that receives the greatest praise, for he knew who was the bishop there. It's only the bishop of Smyrna, St. Polycarp, who is not reproached in any way. In his Lives of the Saints, Butler writes of St. Polycarp, quote, This saint was respected by the faithful to a degree of veneration. He formed many holy disciples, among whom were St. Irenaeus and Papias. When Florinus, who had often visited St. Polycarp, had broached certain heresies, St. Irenaeus wrote to him as follows. Quote now from St. Irenaeus. These things were not taught to you by the bishops who preceded us. I could tell you the place where the blessed Polycarp sat to preach the word of God. I seem to hear him now relate how he conversed with John and many others who'd seen Jesus Christ, the words he'd heard from their mouths. I can protest before God that if, that if this holy bishop had heard of any error like yours, he would immediately have stopped his ears and cried out, according to his custom, Good God, that I should be reserved to these times to hear such things. That very instant he would have fled out of the place in which he'd heard such doctrine. End of quote from St. Irenaeus. Going on with the quotation from Butler's, St. Jerome mentions that at Rome St. Polycarp met the heretic Marcion in the streets, who, resenting that the holy bishop did not take that notice of him which he expected, said to him, Do you not know me, Polycarp? Yes, answered the saint, I know you to be the firstborn of Satan. He had learned this abhorrence of the authors of heresy, who knowingly and willingly adulterate the divine truths, from his master, St. John. End of quote from Butler. That's how the faith was passed on. St. Irenaeus, who became a bishop in Gaul, received the faith from St. Polycarp, and St. Polycarp received it from St. John the Evangelist. We see that St. Polycarp had a great dread of heresy, and we should have this too. We should loathe anything which adulterates the truth that comes to us from the Apostles. This talk's gone on long enough, 
But I'll just say a last word about sticking to our Catholic worship, even if we find it uninspiring. Calvary was very uninspiring. Nevertheless, what happened there was the greatest thing that could happen. And apart from the fact that we cannot see our Lord, and now, of course, he can no longer suffer, nevertheless, what happens on our altars is the same as what happened on Calvary on that first Good Friday. We, through no merits of our own, belong to the one true Church, to that Church which alone has the totality of all that God's revealed to the human race, which alone possesses all the aids to salvation which God has left in the world. The New Catechism, quoting Vatican II's decree on ecumenism, reminds us, quote, If through Christ's Catholic Church alone, which is the universal help toward salvation, that the fullness of the means of salvation can be obtained. End of quote. We don't say that God's salvific grace is confined to the Catholic Church. No one should presume to trace a border round the limitless mercy of God. Nevertheless, from my own experience, I'd say that it is not all that easy for those outside the Church to come to salvation. Theoretically, of course, it's possible. Theoretically, it would be possible for me to draw a perfect circle freehand. Michelangelo could do it, but I couldn't. I need an instrument, a compass. And to get to heaven, I need the sacraments. When I was about 18, I remember having an argument with my mother. She told me that sin offends God, but I disagreed. My sins affected me, they could affect other people, but for the life of me, I couldn't see how they could possibly interest God. So I would never have begged his pardon for them. I was saying that even though other churches may seem more interesting, we should confine our worship of God to our own Catholic Church. Because of original sin, we can have a restless desire for something new. That's how people get hooked on drugs or pornography. It's a desire we should resist. Admittedly, a non-Catholic church may have better singing, more inspiring sermons, a more friendly congregation. But you don't choose a dentist by the quality of magazines in the waiting room or how friendly he is. What Holy Mother Church gives us is real nourishment. Those other services may well be more appealing in many ways, but what we need are the sacraments. These are the medicine that God gives us to help heal the wounds left in us by sin. It's these we need. Our whole religion is sacramental, and that's why it's foolish to go to those other services. I don't mean for weddings and so on. That's just a matter of, of charity and, and good manners. But it would be foolish to go to those churches in order to satisfy your hunger for God. And as for people going to lectures on transcendental meditation and such like, this seems to me quite suicidal. It's tantamount to saying to Christ our Lord, Well, thank you very much for all you've revealed. I found it most helpful and useful. I'm now going to go to Guru Maharaji in case you overlooked something or forgot to mention it. Now that's blasphemous. Since on the cross says somewhere that God has spoken one word, and if we say to God, tell us something more, God says, I've got nothing more to say. I've spoken one word, 
and in that word is everything. God has not revealed everything, but he has revealed all that is good for us to know. We should not look for more. Before he became a Montanist, Tertullian wrote, After Christ we have no need of curiosity, and after the Gospel we have no need of searching. Once we believe, we have nothing else to believe. For the first article of our faith is that there is nothing else to be believed. That's to say, if you are searching for the truth and then find Christ, your search is over. You have found truth himself. You will now rest and enjoy the one you have found, who will tell you all you need to know. We find his teaching in the church. To want further revelations from reputed apparitions or seers is not a sign of spiritual health. We should be satisfied with what God has already given us. That was the trouble with our first parents. They wanted more than God had given them. And people who rush to the scene of the latest reputed apparition show that they are truly children of Eve. Good people, guileless people, who want to know more than they should. I'll conclude with quoting some of our Lord's words from Scripture. In St. John's Gospel, he says, The light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, for their works were evil. And elsewhere, How can you believe who receive glory from one another, and the glory which is from God alone you do not seek? And again, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do the will of him, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God. And to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus he said, O foolish and slow of heart to believe. Yes, ordinarily it's our heart which is at fault, not our head. Unbelief comes more from the heart lacking receptivity than from the matter proposed for belief being too lofty. Faith is a gift which God has entrusted to our fickle hearts, to hearts which have already rejected so many of his gifts. We must ask our Blessed Mother, Our Lady, to guard this gift for us. And for my part, I may say, I always use the first glorious mystery, our Lord's Resurrection, to thank God for the gift of faith. I'll end with a little prayer. O blessed faith, that alone enables us to pass unconfused through the confusion of our times. O heavenly faith, God's precious gift, that unfailingly lights up our path through life. God grant that we may keep this light of faith alive in our hearts until we die and receive its reward, the sight of him in whom we believe. <laughs>